turn to Mark 15, uh, verses 33 to 41. As you're turning there, I, I said in my prayer that we all know that feeling, right? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the Lord I love. Who, who understands that? Is it just me? Okay, you understand that. You know what the Bible would say the remedy for that is, right? Looking to Christ. And namely, looking to Him on the cross and coming from that empty tomb. That is the solution to, to sin, to seeing what He's done and to kind of grabbing your own head in your hands and saying, what are you doing? Consider what He's done for you to make you right with God. And that brings about the desire for obedience. So it's uh, no coincidence that we sing that song right before we come to Mark 15 and the death of Christ. Mark 15, 33 to 41 is our text this morning. We're in this series that we're calling The Death of the King because Mark has been leading us to see the death of the King of Israel and the death of the King of the world, if you will. And here we kind of have the, the, the passage that exemplifies the title of the whole section. So the title of the section is The Death of the King, but the title for this message is The Death of the King. Verses 33 to 41. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the Younger and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Again, here's the death of the king. We go from Mark 1 to Mark 15. We saw last week Jesus is on the cross, but here we see Jesus dying on the cross. I wonder how many times you've been in church as a Christian and gone verse by verse through a gospel and gone through the topic of the death of Jesus. We think about it every day. We refer to it often. But how many times in your life have you actually gone verse by verse through a gospel book in a church setting and come to the death of Jesus? Probably not that much. Well, here we are on this date looking at the death of Jesus Christ. May God give us eyes to see how amazing this reality is. I don't know if you've ever received... Um, maybe a family heirloom from someone who died or a, a gift that someone who died left in your possession. There's always something strange about it, a little uncomfortable about it. I'm getting this because my loved one died. And we even might say that at different points. Maybe it's a, a grandmother handing a grandson something and saying, Grandpa wanted you to have this. And you kind of feel uncomfortable receiving that because you know the reason you have it in your hands is because grandpa has died and there's kind of that 
discomfort there, although you see that this item is precious. And you might even say something to that fact. It feels weird holding this or having this or being given this, to which your grandmother may say something like, he wanted you to have it, kind of bringing that clarity. Well, I I see that type of reality in this passage. We come to the death of Jesus Christ, and there is certainly a sadness that comes to us. We know why He died. We know that it's not just the Romans and the Jews that put Him there. It's us that put Him there to death on the cross. There's a certain sadness there and an ownership But Mark is also showing us the benefits of Jesus' death for us, and this comes out in how he articulates this. I've told you before and all throughout the study of the Gospel of Mark, I don't believe it's best to study the Gospels as a harmony. There are books like the harmony of the Gospels, and that's helpful in one regard. A lot of times people think, I want to know everything that happened at the cross, and there's certainly nothing wrong with that. It's a harmony of the Gospels. John says this, Luke says this, Mark says this, Matthew says this. Let's put it all together and see the full picture. But the Bible is written in a way where the Holy Spirit has seen to it that He's going to give Mark the words to write what Mark wants you to understand because the Holy Spirit wants you to understand certain aspects about the death. So it's not just let's find out all that we can about the death of Jesus Let's ask this morning, what does the Holy Spirit want us to understand from this passage about the death of Jesus? Mark leaves out a lot. Mark only gives one saying of Jesus on the cross. There were a number of others. The other gospel writers bring those in. Mark just gives us one. Mark says nothing about what Jesus said prior to the darkness on the earth. Mark only gives us Jesus' words, one statement after the darkness on the earth. There are reasons for all of this. Mark is focusing us in on the substitutionary, servant-like death of Jesus, and in this passage, he shows us the benefits for us. So while sad, it's also hopeful. It's meant to bring us hope this morning. So this morning, I want to give us this outline, three benefits that accompany the death of the king. This is what Mark wants us to see, three benefits that accompany the death of the king. The first is substitutionary abandonment. Jesus is not rescued on the cross. Jesus is, in his own words, forsaken on the cross. Jesus cries, the son cries, the father doesn't answer. Jesus was rejected on the cross, not not rescued on the cross so that we would be rescued because of the cross. There's a substitutionary abandonment. We deserve to be abandoned by God, but if you're a Christian, you never, ever will be. This is because of what Jesus did and what He endured on the cross. Verse 33, and when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. This is miraculous. This is amazing. Imagine if you know, you go out to lunch after church, you're at the Golden Corral, and it's, you know, it's noon, and all of a sudden it gets dark. And you look outside, complete darkness at noon, high noon. It's dark from noon to three. That would grab your attention. That, that would cause you to wonder, what in the world is going on? Well, what in the world was going on on this day for it to be dark from noon to three? This was miraculous. What was going on was that God the Father was punishing God the Son, not for anything the Son did, but for the things that we have done. God the Son was punished by God the Father in the place of sinners. 
Mark makes it very clear to show us how long this darkness lasted, three hours. Other gospel writers do the same thing. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, from 12 p.m. to 3 p.m., there was darkness over the whole land. Now, is that just the land of Judea? Is that just Jerusalem? Well, the word land can also be used for earth. My belief is that there was darkness over the whole earth. But either way, there's darkness here in Jerusalem, just outside the city walls, and Jesus is on the cross in this three-hour darkness, and He's suffering. Now, why darkness? Just If, if you want to interpret things in Scripture, if you want to interpret them rightly, here's one principle. What does this author mean elsewhere when he talks about darkness? Well, this is the only book we have in Mark, uh, of Mark, so we don't have another book that he's written, so we don't know what else he says about darkness. So the next question you would ask is, what does the rest of the Bible say about darkness? How do we understand darkness? Well, darkness is judgment. Think back to Exodus. Think back to the Israelites being rescued from the slavery in Egypt. They're going to be uh, freed, released, redeemed, rescued. They're going to be sent out of Egypt. And just before that, this ninth plague on the Egyptians, not the Israelites, this ninth plague is going to be darkness over the land. Certainly the Israelites would have been there and known that, but this is aimed at judgment on Egypt. There's darkness over the land for three days. This is God judging evildoers for what they've done by bringing darkness. God is light. In Him there is no darkness. But when He brings about darkness, it's judgment on those who are darkened by sin. And so the, the, the Jews would have known this in their history. They would have known that darkness meant judgment from God. And here at the cross, Jesus is being judged by God, and that's represented by this darkness. Now, what's important to understand is the, the world itself, the Romans themselves, even, even the chief priests at this time aren't being… the darkness isn't aimed at them. The darkness is aimed at the Son of God on the cross. Jesus is receiving the judgment. During this three-hour period is the time where He would receive the wrath of God, something we can't understand. We can understand being whipped. We can understand having something physical happen to us that hurts. We can understand those sufferings of Jesus, but we can't understand what it was like to suffer the wrath of God, to suffer for sinners in their place. An eternal amount of wrath for all the sinners who would ever believe just in three hours. We don't know what that's like, but that would have been the worst suffering that Jesus suffered, even more than the beatings, even more than the scourging. Jesus is being judged, and the darkness shows us that. Jesus is being judged by God the Father in the place of sinners. Verse 34, and at the ninth hour, so we're done with the darkness, right? At 3 p.m., and at the ninth hour, so the darkness is over, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, leme sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Again, this is the only thing Mark records that Jesus said. We know he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He said, I thirst. He said a number of other things. Mark records this. And so what Mark's doing is showing you Jesus has suffered for three hours the wrath of God. Now, after that, he says, why have you forsaken me? Jesus has suffered the complete wrath of God for sinners, and now Jesus quotes Psalm 22.1, which says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? Why aren't you coming to my rescue? 
Now, in the Psalms, the psalmists who wrote at the time, they write these things, and it feels like abandonment, but we know David wasn't abandoned by God. Jesus here, quoting the psalm, it feels like abandonment, being forsaken, and that's exactly what it was. God the Father did not come to His rescue. The word forsaken, refused to accept If your children are suffering to the point of death and you can do something about it, you do something about it. Why didn't God the Father do something about it here? Because this was the plan that He set forth to rescue you and I. And, as you know, there is no conflict in the Trinity. Elsewhere, we learn that Jesus set His face toward Jerusalem. His plan was to do this, but in His humanity, He feels the forsaken nature of the relationship. He feels the split in the relationship. Remember, God has been telling us of His approval of the Son all throughout the Gospel of Mark. In Mark chapter 1, Jesus is is baptized, and there's a voice from heaven, and, and we're told that the people around heard it. This wasn't just Jesus that heard it. People around heard the voice from heaven saying, you are my Son, and you I am well pleased. And then in Mark 9, this great transfiguration, this, this glimpse of the victory of Jesus in the future, this glimpse of the victory, Peter, James, and John are on the mountain, and they hear a voice that says this. He's not talking to his son. He's talking about his son. He's talking to them. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And then these words, listen to him. The son has always been pleasing to the father. The Son has never once been at odds with the Father. Jesus Christ has never done anything wrong to the Father, and He didn't do anything wrong here. This is a cry that you and I should be uttering. Why, God, did you forsake me forever? But we'll never utter that cry because of Jesus Christ. This is all substitutionary. Verse 35, and some of the bystanders hearing it, hearing this last final cry, this final phrase of Jesus. Some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. Now, some think that Jesus might have been calling Elijah because the words Eloi and Elihu sound familiar. So, maybe he's calling out for Elijah to help him. The Jews did believe that before the day of the Lord, the final day of judgment, before the day of the Lord, Elijah would come back because, remember, Elijah never died, went up to heaven alive. One day, Elijah would come back before the judgment on the earth, and Elijah would protect the people of God. And so, they're saying here, maybe Elijah's going to come and protect him. This is continued mockery. Maybe Elijah's going to come and protect him. Maybe he's calling out to Elijah. And the idea is, as if Elijah is going to come and save him from the wrath of God. No, 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 the wrath of God is coming on a man like this. He deserves wrath. Remember, he's a blasphemer. He's misled the nation. So so they're kind of mocking Jesus, saying, yeah, maybe Elijah's going to come and rescue him. In their mind, thinking, no way would Elijah come rescue him. Elijah will come and rescue us one day. He's calling Elijah. This one ran and filled up a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. The, this sour wine that wasn't the best of wine, but maybe would have relieved him. And we know John says that he had just said that he was thirsty. And so, they're going to give him this sour wine, but hold on, let's see whether Elijah comes to take him. That, that's what's happening here. 
Christ is abandoned on the cross. One writer said that Christ is hanging on the cross in between heaven and earth, rejected by both. And you see that here. The darkness comes, He's forsaken on the cross, and there's this continued mockery of people at the cross. Jesus hanging between heaven and earth, rejected by both. Christ is abandoned, not just abandoned by God, but abandoned for us. I don't know if you've ever felt forsaken by God, distance from God. Where is God? Look at all I'm going through. How could God let me do this? I pray. I don't feel like He hears me. God, what are you doing? I don't feel close to you. Anybody felt like that? That's a common thing. What's important to realize is if you're in Christ, you're never abandoned by God. You may feel abandoned by God, but you're not. Christ was abandoned for you. You know, one of the most famous Christians in all church history felt this way often. His name was Charles Spurgeon, the great prince of preachers. Charles Spurgeon struggled with depression throughout his adult life. Don't know if you knew that. Often depressed. Charles Spurgeon didn't preach verse by verse through texts. He would, he would come up with his text during the week that he wanted to preach on. Something was on his heart, so he'd preach on it. Something was on his heart the next week, something different from another book, maybe a different testament. He'd preach from it. Well, one day he decided to preach on this particular passage. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know the reason he wanted to preach that? It's because he felt forsaken by God. And so he wanted to spend time looking into that. So this, this man who often felt darkness and this forsaken or fractured relationship with God, this, this depression decided to preach this text one day just for his own heart. So the story goes that he preached the text and afterwards went back to the vestry, as they would call it, his, his study, his place, and, and a man came afterwards. And, and Spurgeon said that he preached this passage because he was preaching his own cry, the cry of Jesus, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Spurgeon was saying, I preached my own cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He said, I felt an agony of spirit. I was under an awful sense of being forsaken by God, and I could not understand why I was surrounded by such thick darkness. Again, many of you understand that thought. Well, after the service, again, this older man came, and he said this to Spurgeon. He said, I have never met anybody who has been where I am, but I trust there is hope. See, Spurgeon's message that day about Christ on the cross somehow gave this man, who is often so hopeless, a hope. And Spurgeon said afterwards that he realized that maybe one of the reasons God had visited him with such darkness was so that maybe he could point others to the light of Christ. And so he actually told Christ after this sermon, if you want me to continue in this darkness for your glory and for the help of others, I will. So Spurgeon felt forsaken, and that ultimately led a man who heard him to have hope. Well, Spurgeon felt forsaken, and that helped somebody else. Jesus Christ actually was forsaken to help you and I eternally. Jesus was forsaken so that we would not be. Listen to Ephesians 2.13. But now in Christ Jesus... 
you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So if you feel far from God, let me say it this way, it is simply a feeling. If you trust in Jesus Christ as your righteousness, as your Savior, the feeling of being far from God is a feeling. The truth is, Jesus' blood has brought you near. That's why Paul writes so clearly in Galatians that he wants you to know, God wants you to know that you've been adopted by the Father. Because of what Jesus' Son went through, you've been adopted by the Father. So that's the benefit, first benefit from the cross. Christ is abandoned for us. It's a substitutionary abandonment. There's a second benefit to the cross, unfathomable access, unfathomable access. Verse 37, and Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Probably not audible words, but just this loud shriek, this crying out and then breathed his last. There it is. Mark 15, chapter 37, the Son of God dies. The King of Israel dies. The Son of Man who's supposed to conquer nations dies. There it is. Mark 15, 37, he's dead. No longer breath in him, no longer life in him. He uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Most think that uttering this loud cry was the sign that he's in pain, he's in agony, and then he chooses at that time after that loud cry to breathe his last. He did, after all, say in John 10, 18 that he was the one that determined when to lay down his life. So he utters this loud cry, and he determines to breathe his last. Verse 38, and the, verse 37 and 38 are connected. These verses are, are, go together. He utters this loud cry. He dies, and something to the temple happens. He's not in the temple. He dies, and something happens in the temple. Verse 38, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Jesus dies, and something happens to the temple curtain. What's happening here? There's a picture of access happening. Remember, how, how, was, how were your sins represented before God in the temple? An animal had to be executed, and blood had to be splattered, was brought into the Holy of Holies, the presence of God. So there is a substitutionary animal death as a picture of being right with God. If you're going to be right with God, it's going to come through death. And what guarded the Holy of Holies, this great giant curtain in the temple at the time. So at the death of Jesus, the time when the Lamb of God is slaughtered, if you will, now there's access to God. This isn't coincidence. Verse 37 and oh, then verse 38 happened. These things go together. Jesus breathes his last and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now let's, let's just kind of remember what the Bible has taught us about the presence of God. All right, Adam and Eve enjoy this home with God. Adam and Eve sin against God. And then what happens? They're expelled from the presence of God. So right there in Genesis 3, the message is sent. You cannot just walk up into the presence of God with your sin. You can't just casually saunter up into the presence of God. No more. Then we come to Exodus. 
And if you're reading through the Bible and your yearly Bible reading plan, you know, Genesis is good. Man, 50 chapters are so much in, in Genesis. It's amazing. Then you get to Exodus. Wow, the plagues and, and, and the freedom of the people of, of Israel. They're out of Egypt. They go through the Red Sea. Fascinating, fascinating. And then you come to Exodus 26, and all of a sudden there's these prescriptions about curtains and temples, and you're like, I don't know if I have it in me anymore. What in the world is this saying? Why is this here? Well, let's zoom out for a moment, okay? God is giving prescriptions for a tent where His people will meet Him. Remember Genesis 3? You've sinned, out of here. Now, God's giving these prescriptions, and God's initiating a way for His people to meet with Him again. That's the significance of what's happening with that tabernacle. God is going to make His dwelling again with His people. He's freed them from the slavery in Egypt, and now He's going to meet with them in the wilderness. This is showing you the character of God. God desires to meet with His people. But you can't just walk up. We're sinners. We're rebellious. His people, before He gives them these prescriptions about this tabernacle in Exodus, before that, they're complaining about Him. You should have let us stay in Egypt and die. We have nothing here. And he feeds them, and he gives them water. He's gracious to them, better than they deserve, but that's still not what they think they should have. So they complain, and they complain, and they complain. Then you get to Exodus 26, and he gives prescriptions so that they can meet with him. This God, your God, who's the same today as he was then, is a God who makes a way for you to be with him. What happens after this tabernacle is built? You get to the book of Leviticus and you hear all these, these offerings and sacrifices and you're scratching your head, what in the world are these showing? Again, this is what it means to come into the presence of God. God wants to have peace with you and it's coming through the death of another. You want to be right with God, your sin's got to be dealt with. And so you, you kind of, in Leviticus 1 through 9, kind of have the prescriptions and all right, here we go. The Israelites are ready to meet with God. And then in Levit Leviticus 10, Two of the sons of Aaron go into the Holy of Holies, which they're not supposed to go into, and they offer the sacrifice, and they're struck dead because they went about it wrong. You can't just walk up to God, hey, I'm coming on my terms. You can't do that. He's holy. You're sinful. He was gracious to make a way, but you said, ah, we'll do it this way. So again, Leviticus 10, this low point after God's been so gracious, and then you think, that's it. No more tabernacle. I'm done. I made a way, you violated me again, I'm done. But no, Leviticus 11 comes. And let's clean this place up. Let's, let's sanctify it again. And God invites his people again to come and meet with him. This is the character of God. He desires to meet with his people, but there's a way to come to him. And then fast forward centuries they get to Jerusalem, they get to the promised land, they build their temple, and at this point, there's another temple during the time of Jesus, and there's this great temple with this great curtain separating the, the, the area where God's presence dwells from the rest of the people, and once a year, the high priest can go in and offer a sacrifice on behalf of the people, but still you learn. We have access to God, but it can only be in His way. And year after year, there's the slaughtering of animals, slaughtering of animals. This weekend alone, thousands upon thousands slaughtered so that people can have access to the presence of God. 
Even in the temple complex, there's the court of the Gentiles, there's the court of the women. You can only come this far, you can only come this far. There's barriers to getting to God. But He's available in His way. And then, Jesus Christ breathes His last temple curtain torn in two. And you know why it's torn in two from top to bottom, because this was a divine tearing in two. This temple curtain would be 73 feet tall. 73 feet tall. This wasn't done by someone reaching up to the top and tearing it. It was God tearing this temple curtain to show that there's now access before His throne. That's, it's interesting. Again, I don't want to go too much in Leviticus, but when you have the Holy of Holies and you've got the cherubim covering the Ark of the Covenant, it's as if God is sitting on a throne. And so here, God's sitting on a throne and you've got this, this curtain torn in two. Jesus dies, you've got access to the throne. That's the picture here. Unfathomable access. You know that there are gates in heaven, right? There are gates in the New Jerusalem. One day we will come to the dwelling place of God, real space and time, as real as this wood is and this microphone is, real gates, real grass, okay, a present, a physical place. There are gates in heaven. Here's the beautiful thing. They're all open. They're all opened. There's access to the living God because of what Christ has done. You might think, why the gates? Because it reminds us. They're there, but they're opened. There's access to God. That's why I think of this and I call the second point unfathomable access. There shouldn't be access. I should be in hell forever because of what I've done. But there's access because of the death of Jesus. I want to show you one other fascinating thing. Maybe it's just fascinating to me. I don't know. I think it's fascinating to you. Turn to Mark 1. Go back to the beginning of Mark. I want you to see a bracket in Mark 1 and a bracket in Mark 15. Mark 1, verse 10. I mentioned this earlier. Jesus is baptized. Well, let's start in verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. So this is the beginning of his public ministry. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being, notice that verb, torn open. So Jesus comes up out of the water. He's been baptized. The heavens are torn open and the Spirit descends on him like a dove and a voice came from heaven. You are my, notice these words, beloved son, with you I'm well pleased. With you I'm well pleased. Now again, remember, Mark 1.1, it's the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So Mark starts his gospel. This is the story about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Right away, Jesus is baptized, the heavens are torn open. The Spirit comes and heaven says, this is the Son. You are my beloved Son. Okay, so heaven is giving credence to what Mark says. Yep, this is a story about Jesus being the Son of God and heaven has just said, you are my Son. Now, let's go to chapter 15 where we're at. Chapter 15, 38 and 39. So Jesus, verse 37, utters a loud cry and breathes his last, and the curtain of the temple was, same verb, torn in two. Okay, so Mark 1, 
skies torn apart. Spirit comes, you're my son. Here in 15, temple torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this was the son of God. So God tears the heavens open and says, you're my son in Mark 1. Here in Mark 15, he tears the temple curtain open and the Roman centurion, pagan, Gentile says, this is the son of God. People are starting to get it. God tears the temple open at the death of Jesus and reveals that Jesus is the son of God. You'd think that his death would show, ah, he's not the son of God. See, he's defeated. But God sees to it that when he dies and that temple is torn, that temple curtain is torn, he's going to show, see, he is the Son of God. He came to give people unfathomable access. Listen to Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. We don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every, respect, in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Again, the ark, the holy of holies being seen as the throne of God. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. You see here the writer of Hebrews wants you to have a confidence coming into the presence of God because of what Jesus has done for you. If you're not a Christian, if you're not a follower of Christ, the call to you this morning is, listen, you've got the ability to today go before the living God, the all-powerful, all-holy judge of the world, and you can go before him and be right before him. And it's not because you are better than your neighbor, Jim. He's really immoral. You're moral. See, God will accept me. No, he won't. It requires perfection to come to God. You can come to God because Jesus Christ, if you, if you trust in his death, he suffered for sinners. So he took your sins, suffered on the cross, so that you can be reconciled to God the Father. Today, the Bible would say, today you can stand in the presence of God and be completely righteous before him because of Jesus Christ with no threat of his wrath. That is literally too good to pass up. Trust in Jesus Christ and be right with God. I can't believe I'm saying it this way. You can enter into the Holy of Holies today. Unfathomable to anybody during that day in the first century and even the centuries before to tell someone you can go into the Holy of Holies. Well, you can because of Jesus Christ. There's a reason in medieval times cathedrals had their doors to the church painted red because you came into the place of God's people. You came into the place of gathered worship. You came in through red, through the blood of Christ. You're here acceptable to God because you were ushered in by the blood of Christ. That's fascinating in light of all the Bible says about being in the presence of God. If you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, I want to remind you, you always have access before the Father. You may feel like your sins are keeping you from Him, and there certainly is an idea that when you sin against God, there's a rift in the relationship, right? So what do you do then? I'll earn it back. 
I'll do more good than I did bad next week because I did a lot more bad than good last week. No. You don't make deals like that with God because the deal's already been made. The sacrifice has already been made. God, I have no right to talk to you right now. I have no right for you to listen to me. But your son died for my sin and he brought me to you. So I come in the name of Jesus Christ to speak to you and I know you listen to me. You always have an audience with God the Father if you're a Christian. Always. James Stewart, the Scottish preacher, told a story of preaching one day, and in his church there was a man who came in, and he was a Christian man, but he had been involved in sin, and he was so convicted and so troubled by it that when it came time to partake of the Lord's table, this man just let the elements go by and didn't even feel worthy to to take the elements of the Lord's table. And then this man saw as the elements were being passed a young woman who also refused the elements. One of his sisters in the church, he knew her. But she refused the elements and she was just in tears over her sin evidently. And Stuart says that her tears jarred this man back to the truth of the gospel. And this man said in a loud whisper to which others in the church heard, he said to the woman across the way, he said, take it, lassie, take it. It is meant for sinners. This man seeing this other sister in Christ mourning over her sin wanted her to take and eat because that's what it's meant for. Remember that you're not considered a sinner. You're considered righteous by his death. I think some of you may be need to be jarred back to the gospel today. Feel ashamed. You continue to sin against the God that you love, the God that you know died on the cross for you. And maybe here, seeing the access you have to God the Father because of Jesus the Son, maybe today you're jarred back to the gospel and you remember, I am accepted. I'm accepted by Jesus Christ. I hope you all feel that this morning because that's the truth. So there are benefits to the death of Jesus. There is a substitutionary abandonment, an unfathomable access, and finally, (laughs) worldwide availability. Worldwide availability, verses 39 to 41. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. The centurion, officer of a hundred men, probably the one presiding over the crucifixion. Get that. One of the ones presiding over the crucifixion of Jesus, crucifying this man because he should be crucified in his eyes. But now there's darkness over the land. And now Jesus raises out this cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this man is seeing all of this and something about this The man stands facing him, sees that in this way he breathed his last. He says, truly this man was the Son of God. This This is amazing. If you want someone to prove to you that someone is the Son of God, you're probably going to ask them to prove it to you by his power. Prove to me that that man is the Son of God. Show me all the things that he can do. Show me the miracles, show me the parting of the sea, show me all the things that he can do, and maybe I'll believe. Only one problem. 
All throughout Mark, we've been seeing the miracles of Jesus, miracles of Jesus, and so many people don't believe. But here, you see the death of Jesus, which doesn't seem miraculous, seems to show that he's defeated. In the death of Jesus, the centurion sees he's the Son of God. That's what Mark has been laboring to show us all throughout this gospel. The amazing, powerful Son of Man is going to suffer and die. And in that, you see the amazing nature of God. God is not just all-powerful. God is not just able to do whatever He determines. God is not just the one who controls everything. He's also the one in human flesh who comes to die for sinners. That's what proves that He, Jesus, is the Son of God. It's in seeing Him, not in His power, but seeing Him in His humiliation and His death because you realize that He did that for others. This is what God is like. You want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus who explains Him to us. And you see that He's powerful and you also see that He's a servant. God, a servant, a suffering servant. That's what God is like. And we come to a first here in the Gospel of Mark. It only took us 15 chapters. Mark 1.1, title of the Gospel, Jesus is the Son of God. Mark 1.11, as I told you earlier, heaven saying, you are my beloved Son. Mark 9.7, heaven again saying, this is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. Chapter 3 and chapter 5, demons recognize Jesus as the Son of God. In Mark 12, there's a parable about a son who comes to get fruit or comes to get the reward for the Father's land. Mark 12 also, the Lord of David is a son. Mark 14, Caiaphas mockingly asks, are you the son of the blessed? Caiaphas isn't admitting, yes, you're the son of God. He's mocking, are you the son of the blessed? So far, no human, no human lips have uttered Jesus Christ as the son of God. None in Mark. But when he dies, a Gentile who's presiding over his crucifixion says, surely this is the Son of God. He was the Son of God. There's something about his death that shows his greatness as the Son of God. God sent his Son because it's in his character to bring sinners to himself. He sent his son to die because our God is a merciful God. And God has done something about our sin problem to bring us back to him. And it's the death of his son. The death of the son of God awakens people. That's why Paul went out preaching. And his theme was what? Christ crucified. Paul wasn't going out preaching, hey, Christ can do all sorts of miracles. Christ can do this. Christ can feed people. Christ can do all that. That was certainly part of Christ. But Paul came preaching Jesus Christ and him crucified. And Jews, many of them saw that and that's embarrassing. That's foolish. Greeks saw that and that's not wisdom. That's not power. To Jews, it was a stumbling block. To the Greeks, it's but to those of us who are being saved, it's the power of God. No, God in human flesh died for me. He's the Son of God. That's what Mark has been trying to lead us to. 
And here he shows us, shows us. So it's a Roman soldier presiding over his crucifixion that is the first one that says, surely this was the Son of God. Truly this man was the Son of God. It's not a Jew. It's not Peter coming out from behind a building, finally getting his courage back as Jesus breathes his last and saying, see, he's the Son of God. It's not even Peter. It's not Judas. It's a Roman centurion. The Bible has taught us for centuries that Jesus Christ isn't just the king over Israel. He's the king over all kings. He's the God over all gods. His salvation is going to go to the ends of the earth. In a day and age where there were localized gods, the Jews had their God, Yahweh. The Romans had their gods, Caesar. Back then, the Hittites had their gods, localized gods. Here, Jesus is the Son of God, and it's not just a Jew that recognizes it. It's a Roman that recognizes it. Jesus is the God over all gods, the Lord over all lords, the King over all kings. So there's this availability to salvation. People who aren't just Jews will see that Jesus is the Son of God. Here, it's a Roman, a Roman soldier. And it's not just men, the important ones in society. They're going to realize that Jesus is the Son of God. Notice verse 40. There's worldwide availability. It's going to go to Jews and Gentiles, and it's going to go to men and women. He highlights the fact that women followed Jesus. Verse 40, there were also, so not just Roman centurion, there were also women looking on from a distance, <coughs> excuse me, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the Younger and of Joseph and Salome. Mark lists three people for us, Mary Magdalene, the lady who had seven demons cast out of her. And just so you know, there's no evidence she was a prostitute. If you think that, you're just reading Newsweek magazine, not the Bible, okay? Well, Newsweek magazine doesn't exist anymore, but anyway, it's extra biblical. No evidence that she was Jesus' wife, again, one of those magazines. We just know this lady had a great debt to Jesus, debt that she would never repay. He wasn't requiring her to repay it, but he had saved her. He had rescued her from seven demons. Also, Mary, the mother of James the Younger and Joseph, don't know much about her, and a woman named Salome. This is the wife of James and John, the wife of Zebedee. The one who earlier said, hey, can my son sit on your right and your left? She was also a follower of Christ. And they're there looking on at a distance at Jesus. All three of these ladies will show up the morning of his resurrection. And verse 41, Mark, is, Mark continues to show us that these ladies were followers of his. And again, to us, yeah, we know. We know these ladies. There are a bunch of Marys in the New Testament, you know, Salome. Yeah, yeah, we know. We, we got it. No, no, no. This is, this is revolutionary. Ladies didn't follow rabbis. Men followed rabbis. But these ladies followed Jesus as if he was their rabbi. Jesus, one thing about Jesus that I love is Jesus treats women with dignity, he treats ostracized women with dignity. Jesus cares about women. And, and if you want to prove that he rose again, one thing, if you, if you were kind of writing the Bible, glad we weren't, but if you and I were, we'd probably say he appeared to men, the credible witnesses in the first century, and he was resurrected. But no, no, an angel goes in Mark 16 and goes to women. They're not even allowed to testify in court. 
You think heaven cares? Who cares? I'm going to these women. Mark is highlighting that it's not always the strong and powerful that followed Jesus. The chief priests, scribes, rejected him, mocked him. We saw that a couple weeks ago. Mocked, mocked, mocked. And all of a sudden, a Roman guy gets it, a Roman centurion. And there are three women who've been following him for a while, and they get who this is, and they keep following him and trusting him. Verse 41, when he was in Galilee, they followed him. They've been following him for a while and ministered to him, which probably means they were helping him along the way, maybe food, maybe clothing, items he needed. Luke 8, verses 2 and 3 say that they helped him out of their means, that they were, they were giving of what they had to Jesus and his followers and his disciples and their mission. So they're supporting the mission of Jesus. When he was in Galilee, verse 41, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Do you see how Mark is trying to show all the women that followed Jesus? This is, this is not how you would write an account to convince people that Jesus is the Son of God. You'd say the Jews finally got it and repented. You'd say a bunch of men got it. Peter came back. You'd focus on that. Heaven's focusing you on the fact that Gentiles are going to get it. Women are going to get it. This salvation is available to everyone. Everyone. Everyone's important. Every soul matters. The little child in Afghanistan, the woman in Italy, the working dad in Nigeria, all of them matter. All of them need the gospel. The Son of Man came to ransom a people, to rescue a people, and that message should be shared with everyone. And here we're getting a little glimpse that this is going to go beyond the borders of Jerusalem, isn't it? A Roman centurion has a clue here. And these women, these nobodies in that day and age are highlighted forever in Scripture as His followers. This gospel is for everyone. Mark has shown us throughout that Jesus has a heart for the nations. He heals the Syrophoenician's daughter. He goes and does healings in Decapolis. He feeds 4,000 Gentiles. Jesus is one who cares about all people. Let me say it this way. Jesus deserves the worship of everybody on the planet. The greatest problem in the world today is a worship problem. Not every soul worships Jesus Christ. Every one of those souls created by God but is not in love with God. That's the greatest problem in the whole world. It's not leftist politics. It's not that your baseball team isn't doing well. It's not that you've got cancer. That's, those aren't the greatest problems in all the world. The greatest problem in all the world is that there aren't worshipers of Jesus who should be worshipers of Jesus. So Jesus dies on a cross and he sends his followers out to everywhere. And he wants them saved. He wants the gospel brought to them. It's been said that the nations are the reward of his suffering. He suffered. What does he deserve for that? Every single need to bow and worship him. He deserves the reward of his suffering. So when we engage in missions and we use our money to go and support Jordan and Jenny and Rome and, and 
we support the, the Holdemans in Thailand. We pray for them. It's because Jesus re- deserves the reward of his suffering. Th- those people in Thailand who don't know anything about Jesus Christ, their lives should be given to Jesus Christ in worship, but they aren't right now. They worship all sorts of other things. That's why the Holdemans are there to help bring about the reward of his suffering. Think of two Moravian missionaries in the 1700s, German missionaries. They had a heart for this this island where people were enslaved and would never leave, slaves working until they died. These people, these two missionaries knew that there was no gospel witness there, and so they sold themselves into slavery to this island, and they would never leave the island. They sold themselves into slavery so they can bring the gospel to these slaves. They were on a ship departing their family, and their family's weeping on the shore, and the one man yells out, may the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. The lamb deserves these lives. The lamb deserves the lives of Roman Catholics enslaved to a false religion. That's why Jordan and Jenny are there. The, 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 the slain lamb deserves the lives of people in Thailand who have never heard about him, and that's why the Holdemans are there. The lamb deserves to be praised by Native American peoples all throughout this nation and other nations. That's why the students who get saved and come to Indian Bible College are being trained so that they can go and make known this slain lamb who died for sinners. And they can tell their dad and their grandpa that God has made a way for you to be right with him through his son, Jesus Christ. May the lamb receive the reward of his suffering. Jesus died so that people from all over the planet can come to him, can come to God through him and be reconciled. So there are clearly benefits to his death. A substitutionary abandonment, unfathomable access, and salvation available to the world. So, brothers and sisters, go home realizing that Jesus died for you and he died for the world. And let's take comfort in that reality. Let's pray. Jesus, work in our hearts awe and wonder because of what you've done. I am asking you to transform our prayer lives because of the access we have to you, Father. Pray that we would pray more, pray often, pray confidently. I pray that when we are convicted of sin, you would raise our heads to realize that our, our Savior gave us access to you, forgiveness. Father, for those in here who aren't your son's followers, I'm asking you to open their eyes to the fact that your son is the son of God who died for them. I pray that that would draw them into an eternal relationship with you. And Father, we do pray for Jordan and Jenny and Daniel and Aaron and the, all their kids and Daniel and Kareen at Indian Bible College and the people that we pray for and, and work for and give for, that they would make known your son's death to the ends of the earth. You clearly wanted this message to go outside of Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. So, Whether we are goers or senders ourselves, we pray for the work being done throughout the world. Father, right now there are Afghanistan citizens being pushed out into other countries. 
and they're Christians being pushed out of their homes into other countries who don't know Christ. So I pray that you'd even use their flight to bring about the gospel to other places. You did that in the first century, you can do it here in the 21st. And the final thing we'd ask is, may the lamb who was slain receive the reward of his suffering. We pray this in his name. Amen.